0: Well, as many of you know, when I was in seminary, during my first year of seminary, I worked as a hospital chaplain, uh, visiting patients and uh, families who were walking through all sorts of difficult times. And I have to admit, there were a number of teaching moments in that experience. Uh, there were a number of moments that I remember very clearly of the Lord showing me something. And I think that's so important in our own lives, this idea of, uh, of being teachable. And, and being lifelong learners. And I think in the text we're going to take a look at in just a moment, the Apostle Paul um, helps with that and gives us some some really helpful insights. So I remember when I was in the hospital walking in one day to a patient's room, whom, whom I had known, he had been there um, a couple of weeks, and he had passed away. And in the room were his siblings and his mother. And he was probably in his 40s. And you could tell that they had hoped a different story to be written. They had prayed that he would live, and yet he had died. And I walked into this room, and you could immediately sense the grief and the sorrow of having to say goodbye. And then I walk in as the chaplain, needing to offer words, needing to offer prayer. And so we gathered around the bed where this brother and son was lying with no more breath. And we gathered around that bed to pray. And I remember as we closed our eyes, right before I closed my eyes, I looked up on the wall. And there was an analog clock there with a second hand. And it caught my eye. And as we all got silent, you could literally hear the of the second hand. And in that moment, I, I, I had this realization that though life had ended for this man lying on the bed, life would continue for that family. And so how do we pray in those moments? Those moments of sorrow, those moments of uncertainty. How do we deal with the suffering? And what I was reminded of and what that moment still reminds me of is saying, we're simply present. We continue to speak words of hope and we simply show up to be with those are dealing with grief and sorrow. And so in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is taking up this idea of suffering. And and he takes a look at it really from a cosmic perspective. We're in Romans chapter 8. We're in verses 18 through 25. We've been talking about this idea of living, this idea of, of being accepted and being loved. And now Paul says, a part of our journey, though, is also the suffering that comes our way. And so let's read what he has to say. Paul says this, I consider that our present sufferings, this is Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly For our adoption to sonship, remember there's that technical term we looked at last week, this idea of adoption to sonship, that we become the firstborn with the rights and the privileges of the firstborn son. As we eagerly await for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait it patiently. So the Apostle Paul really creates this this image of suffering that is cosmic in its perspective. He moves beyond just the suffering of humankind to the groaning of all creation. And I would love to say more about that, uh, but you're going to have to wait for that till this summer. We're going to spend a few weeks talking about creation and talking about the groaning of creation and talking about our responsibility in that, our stewarding responsibility as those who are technically sons and daughters of God. So I promise we're going to get to that a little later on in in the summer, Uh, so stick with me. But for today, we want to talk around this image of suffering. And, And in doing that, I want to look at suffering from basically three different angles. I want to start by talking about the misplaced assumptions that people have about suffering misplaced assumptions. Secondly, I want to talk about how do we steward our suffering? What does it look like to care for our own suffering and for the suffering of others? And finally, I want to end with hope, because hope is the key. Now, I want to say before I get started that that some of the comments that will be in this sermon come out of a great article that was written by Tim Keller. You all know I'm a big fan Of Tim Keller's. Um, You may know that he was diagnosed with with pancreatic cancer about a year ago. And um, if you know the story of pancreatic cancer, it's not not a great diagnosis, but he appears to be doing fairly well in the midst of all that. But in The Atlantic, he wrote an article in the March edition of this year, March of 2021, dealing with how he faces death. The title of the article was, My Faith In the face of death. And you're probably thinking to yourself, now what did Paul just say? If you just Google Atlantic, Keller, death, it'll all come to you. But he has some great insights. It's a four or five page article, but I would highly encourage you to read that. Okay, so let's start with this idea that when it comes to suffering, many in our culture and many in our society, and I mean particularly here the Western world, have misplaced assumptions around the concept of suffering. I know when I go to Belize or I go to Malawi, their perspective on suffering is very different than ours and than those of us who live in the Western world, and that is because I think as as people who live in this live in our culture in our society, we want to push pain down, we want to be pain adverse, we want something to take away whatever it is, whatever pain, whatever suffering it is that we have, and so we want to push it down that's part of the assumption and the assumption is this is we don't want to suffer and 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 what has happened in our culture and what has happened in our society and if you've read uh the secular age by uh charles taylor you may have read this and most of you probably haven't read a secular age because it's 700 pages long but what taylor suggests he says in our western world in the past hundred plus years or so we have pushed god to the margins there, we, God used to always be at the center of the conversation, whether it was around suffering, whether it was around the goodness of life, whether it was around the, the, the cosmos, whatever. God was a part of that conversation. But in our culture today, we have simply assumed that God's not part of the equation because we have built up a much more humanistic approach to life. And so what that does with the concept of suffering specifically is it means that when suffering happens, the claim is made, well, how can a good God allow suffering. And so we have this misplaced assumption and you all may know people. I know. I certainly know people who, when they have had to deal with pain or they have had to deal with suffering or they have had to deal with grief that they simply cannot understand, they walk away from their faith because they simply cannot comprehend that God would be a part of that story because they have this misplaced assumption that when we follow Jesus, there will be no suffering. But man, if you look at this from a biblical perspective, we know that that is simply not the case. You read read through the Old Testament, there is plenty of suffering. Two-thirds of the Psalms that has been suggested, we know for sure at least half of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. People walking through the darkness. Look at the life of Jesus. Crucified. Dead buried, all for living an innocent life, for proclaiming that he was the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Look at the Apostle Paul. Tormented, persecuted, thrown in prison, and yet he kept the faith. He said, I continue to press on Because he knew better. He did not have a misplaced assumption that life was not going to be difficult. He did not have a misplaced assumption about what suffering was all about. He knew that part of the path, part of the journey of following Jesus was that he would suffer. Jesus himself said that, If you follow me, you will have trouble. So we have to get beyond this misplaced assumption. The second thing, though, is we have to think through, well, what then do we do? How do we steward our suffering? How do we kind of manage that? As you all uh, may be aware, uh, Shannon and I lost one of our dear friends, a member of our covenant group, um, last Thanksgiving. Um, and it was, it was really hard on our group. And really hard, especially hard, on Steve, Kathy's husband because she was basically diagnosed with cancer in September and she died in November. And it was devastating. And we were just with Steve and some other friends uh, a couple of weeks ago up in Spokane and and and, and you know it, it it just doesn't seem right. And it just doesn't seem possible that she's gone. But one of the things I learned from Kathy in those 2 months in that 2 month journey was she talked about the comfort of the Psalms. And and I tell people that that the Psalms are really helpful when we're walking through suffering and we're dealing with pain and we're dealing with grief. But it's interesting listening to her voice as she shared about the comfort that the Psalms brought to her. Because in the Psalms, she heard people's story. She heard people who were crying out to God for help, crying out to God for comfort, Crying out for God to be near. And she took on those words and made them her own. And she kept singing the song. And I think for us, one of the ways we steward our suffering, one of the ways we help others in their own suffering, is if they can't read the Psalms, we read them for them. We stand with them in that. And we keep singing those songs to us. I think about Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. It's interesting, Psalm 42 In verse 5, and in verse 11, and Psalm 43 and verse 5, they have the same refrain. And this is what it says. It says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. The psalmist is almost talking to his soul. Or basically is talking to his soul, to his spirit, and saying, why are you downcast? Because this is what happens to us as we deal with suffering, as we deal with pain, as we deal with grief, we get downcast. Why are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? And then he says, he transitions there, he says, put your hope in God. I will yet praise him. I will sing his song again. He's he's pulling himself out of the depths. He's singing to himself saying, don't be downcast. Don't be disturbed. Put your hope in God. I think a part of what Kathy was teaching us was saying that in the Psalms, we are able to keep singing even when it doesn't make sense. We keep putting our hope in God because God is the God who does promise to be close. God is the God who does promise to be near. Even in the midst of our own uncertainty, even as we cry out how long, God keeps reiterating this point that he is by us and he is for us. So one of the ways we do that is through the Psalms. We steward... Suffering through the Psalms. I think we also have to lament. As I said earlier, at least half, if not two thirds, of the Psalms are Psalms of lament, Psalms of grief, Psalms of sorrow. And lament is different than complaint. When we complain, we say basically we don't trust the character of God, we malign God's character. That's complaining. But lament, on the other hand, is prayer that is based on the confidence of God's character. And you notice the difference. Complaining is, is maligning God's character. Lament is saying, I trust in the character of God. I don't understand this. I can't make sense of this. But I'm trusting in God's character. And so we lament in those times. And I loved how someone wrote it, and I can't remember who said this, but they said, lament is prayer in the meantime." It is not the final prayer. It is prayer that gets us through to the next space, to the next place. And so as we steward our own suffering, I think words of lament are very appropriate. Words of our own grief, words of our own uncertainty. That's how we deal with the suffering. The final thing is this, is that we are called, I think, to be good stewards of our suffering. And and let me explain what I mean by this. Uh, Frederick Buechner, who is an author I have read since the, probably before I actually even went to seminary, is one of those authors who always teaches me. And a couple of years ago, they released uh, some a couple of newer books. They weren't really new books, but there are collections of his writings and a few things that he had written. And, and I read one of them, and it's called "A Crazy Holy Grace." And we got up here, so you can take a look at that. "A Crazy Holy Grace," and 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 Buechner tells. The story in that book, and when he was lecturing years and years and years ago, or actually was, was leading a conference, and he was talking about some of his own pain and the pain that he had of of having an alcoholic father and the the death of his father and the grief of his mother and, and and kind of walking through all of that with the group that he was talking to and when he got done, someone came up to him and said, "You know what you've been a good steward of your pain you've been a good steward of you're suffering. And Buechner said it kind of kind of threw him off. And, and he started thinking about that. And, and the, the teaching point that I want to share is that comes out of this book, A Crazy Holy Grace, it, it, is he, he takes a look at Matthew chapter 25 from the perspective of suffering, from the perspective of being a good steward of our suffering. And you may remember this parable that Jesus tells. It's the parable of the, the bags of gold. The, the master is going away. The owner of the property is going away and he gives one servant five bags of gold. He gives the second servant two bags of gold and he gives the third servant one bag of gold. And when the master returns, he comes back and the servant who had the five bags of gold says, look, I've made five more bags of gold. The servant who was given the two bags of gold says, look, I've made two more bags of gold. But do you remember what happens to the third servant? The one who was given one bag of gold. What does he do with it? I know right now you're saying out loud, he buries it, right? He doesn't invest it. He doesn't do anything with it. He simply goes out, digs a hole in the ground, and buries it. And then he makes excuses and says, well, Master, I know that you're a hard person. You reap, and you you, you sow, and you do this, and you gather, and, and, and it's incredible this what you have. And he says, so I was fearful, and I buried it. And Buechner takes this story. Remember, we, as lifelong learners, we always have to be looking for these teachable moments. And it's a great teachable moment. he says, is this what we do with our sorrow as well? Do we bury our grief? That instead of trying to work through it, instead of trying to process it, instead of trying to invest it, we bury it. We don't talk about it. We don't acknowledge it. And we we suffer inwardly, and we live in fear. And Diekner says, perhaps we need to be better stewards of our own sorrow and sadness. I don't remember who said it, but it's so true. And it's this idea that God never wastes pain. God never wastes our tears. God never wastes those moments of suffering. Because as we know that Romans tells us, in all things, God works for good. We may not fully understand it. But I love what Beekner says as saying, look, as we struggle with our own sorrow, perhaps we need to steward it better and not simply dig a hole and put it in there, but allow it to shape us and form us. Allowed to be invested and utilized in our own lives. Henry Nouwen has that great book called The Wounded Healer. And I think that's what Beekner is driving at. So that second point, let's be good stewards of our suffering. Final thing is this. Hope is the key. Paul ends with hope. He talks about the cosmic groaning. He talks about our own personal groaning, groaning. But he says, look, we've got to hope. Hope does not save us. Hope is just an attribute of our faith, but it is a hugely important attribute of our faith. We've got to hold on to hope. We've got to hold on to a better future. That's what the Apostle Paul keeps saying. He says, look, this suffering that we're going through right now is nothing compared to the glory we will one day share. So we keep holding on. Last summer, we took a look at the book of Jeremiah. You might remember that. I think we spent 12 weeks in the book of Jeremiah as we walked through the pandemic, as we walked through uncertainty. And man, isn't it good to be out on the other side of that? But in Jeremiah chapter 32, there's an interesting story that happens. Jeremiah is imprisoned. He's in the courtyard of the the king, basically, of the palace. and, And he's locked in. He's been taken away from his homeland. And all of a sudden, his uncle shows up. This is Jeremiah chapter 32. Verse 8, we read this. Then, just as the Lord had said, so Jeremiah had already known this was going to happen. My cousin, or actually his cousin, Hanamel, came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, Buy my field at Anatoth, in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it. Buy it for yourself. Now, I want you to think about this. Where is Jeremiah? In prison. What's going on? The Babylonians are about ready to attack and destroy the city of Jerusalem. The Babylonians, actually, as we're going to read, are camped out, or you can read, they're camped out at Anatoth. So here's what we read. I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field at Anatoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy, and I gave this deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and all the witnesses who had signed the deed, and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. My gosh, do you see what he's doing? He signs it. He seals it. He puts it in a jar. He takes it to the right people. He's doing everything right to make sure that he is buying this property. But remember, he's in prison. In their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase. Put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. This is preposterous. I had an English teacher when I was in high school. His two favorite words were balderdash and preposterous. This is preposterous. Jeremiah is in prison. He's buying a field he'll never get to see. He's buying a field that is currently being occupied by, by, by the Babylonians who are about ready to destroy the city of Jerusalem. And God says, I want you to invest in the future. What? God, you must be crazy. He's, Jeremiah is weighing out money. He's buying a field even though he's entitled to purchase it. He's, this is absurd. But this is hope. This is the kind of hope that we need. It's a desperate act of hope. Because God has said, the land will be rebought. You keep reading through Jeremiah 32, God says, the people will, will come back. There is judgment, but the people of Israel will return. They will come back to Jerusalem. The property of Anatoth will be used. So by the property because you have a good and certain future that is coming. It is a deliberate act of hope. So the Hebrew word for future is an interesting one. The Hebrew word for future involves two words that really don't necessarily make sense to us when you put them together. It is the word afterward and it is the word backwards afterwards and backwards. And the image of thinking about the future for a Jewish person during the days of Jeremiah was this. Is that you are rowing a boat. And you think about when you're rowing a boat, you face backwards, but you're moving ahead. You basically back into the future. Now, perhaps rowing a boat is not a great image, but I've got a picture here of, of, of people rowing crew. And perhaps you've rowed crew or you've watched other crew teams race. When I was at Princeton, it was always awesome to see uh, the people rowing crew. But if you know, if you row crew or you've watched it, you know, know what is really important in rowing crew. is not only rowing together and having the timing down, but it's the coxswain who sits at the front of the boat that you're looking at, and they see what's coming. You're rowing backwards into the future, but they see what lies ahead. And they tell you what you need to do. And when I think about our hope, I kind of like this image. Because sitting at the head of that ship, at the head of the boat, is Jesus. And we look to him. Because we don't know what we're going to face. We don't know what we're backing to into as we move forward. But we know with certainty that Jesus is there with us. That he is guiding us. He is our hope. He is our salvation. He is the one who shows us that even in suffering, suffering, there can be redemption. That's what the cross tells us. The cross is this image that says, Christ suffered for us. But in his suffering, he has redeemed us. Because you cannot look at the cross and say, God doesn't care. We might not be able to explain evil. We might not be able to explain suffering. But the cross tells us very clearly that God cares. So as we come to this table today, let us set aside our misplaced assumptions about suffering and grief. Let us steward our suffering well. And let us remember the hope that we find in Jesus. The one whom we meet today at this table. So I want to invite you now to pray with me and then we will share in the Lord's Supper. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the hope that we find find in your son, Jesus. Thank you that we're not alone. So God, would you guide us? Would you lead us? Would you feed us at this table? We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.